Welcome to the Two Year Bible, a custom designed two year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasquale, the executive director. Hey there. Welcome to week eight. You've made it just about two months with us, uh, if you're still listening, so congratulations. Uh, we are wrapping up the book of Genesis today, and uh, we'll still continue into the book of Luke uh, today, um, but uh, we come to the finale of this opening book. Um, and Which we find awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. It ends beautifully. It is. It is wrapped up nicely with a bow, unlike some other books in scripture, and yeah. so um we, we find we're still in the Joseph story, uh, but the, re- the redeeming process has started. Uh, Joseph is bringing his family uh, down to Egypt, um, all 70 of them, and um, they're going to settle there, uh, which initially seems like a bad idea. Maybe they are um, uh, redeeming Abraham's mistakes down in Egypt uh, by coming settling in what is the most fertile land in Egypt. I'll include an image in the the show notes uh, overhead of this area, but like Goshen is where the Nile sort of um, becomes a Delta and it is green. And it is, it's like the, the picture of the country is all Brown, like other than this triangle. And so this is where Israel gets the land to, to, to grow, to grow crops and ultimately to be very fruitful and multiply. Yeah. And one of the things is that, Israel, they were nomadic people. And so the Egyptians lived in cities. They didn't want to live in the Delta because it flooded at different times of the year, but it wasn't a big deal to Israel. They didn't mind getting up and moving. And so that's why they were given this fertile, incredible land to live in and cultivate. And Egypt didn't want it. And in the process, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. So we see Jacob be a blessing to the Egyptian king. Uh, so uh, this is from from the start of Abraham till now. We're wrapping up with a story where uh, the the surrounding and what is essentially the most powerful country in the area is being blessed by Jacob, by Abraham's grandchild. Yeah, which is interesting because most of Israel spends like most of their existence is kind of a small, unremarkable nation. And here they are blessing Pharaoh. And I think I would say that this passage in chapter 47 is Jacob's turning point. He finally has become a man who worships God. I mean, you even see in 46 how he goes and he makes sacrifices to the God of his father. He's still not ready to call him his God. But then in verses 7 through 10 and 47, we see this little mini chiasm. Um, Jacob is, I guess it's not a mini chiasm, but it's a it's a chiasm of just a few verses where Jacob is finally owning his mistakes and um, talks about um, settling in the new land and Jacob giving a blessing and sojourning 130 years. And then he says the days of the years of my life of my father's or he says, uh, for you and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father's in the days of their sojourning. He realizes that he kind of wasted most of it. He wasn't living to the God that who called him. Um, and we see a big difference in him after this. Yeah. And so, um, it's always good to see the redeeming parts of people's stories that, um, as, as it's Isaiah who says that, um, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And, yeah. um, Jacob, Judah, these characters that sin pretty, pretty loudly and boldly and, and are very inconsistent over their lives are still people that God redeems and uh, works through uh, in the process. And, and we see the story of redemption in their lives. Yeah, Jacob's story in general for me was really hard and it was pretty discouraging. Certain days I would finish reading and just feel like really disappointed and kind of um, disenchanted with, with the story of the Bible and God's plan for Jacob. So I had to really fight through that. And I'm thankful that we get this kind of redemptive moment in with Jacob 
near the end of Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's, there's hope for others. For me. <laughs> yeah. If Jacob can be redeemed, then I can yeah, too. That's, that's kind of Paul theme too. It's like, I was chief of sinners, but God to show his graciousness yeah. still work through me. Um, and then we get Jacob blessing uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, the two boys of Joseph. Um, and this scene should, should hearken back. We, we've seen a father bless two boys and, uh, and, and Jacob and Esau and that involved Jacob putting on some clothes and looking like his brother. And it was deceptive and, um, and, and not right. It was unjust. And here Jacob is doing this explicitly, Joseph clearly sees his arm switch, even confronts him about it. And Jacob's like, nope, this is what I'm doing. He's very clear. It's very much, Jacob is not being tricky now. He is laying it all out there for everybody to see. Yeah, his blessing is really beautiful. It's really redemptive. He's speaking back over his life and looking at his unfaithfulness, but pointing out the faithfulness of God. Yeah, and he he blesses both. God Mm -hmm. make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And so... um, it's not like one gets robbed or one gets told your your life's going to be terrible. Uh, there's there's a blessing for both. Yeah. Also in chapter forty eight, we see uh, the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. This is the ninth time in Genesis we see this come up. It's yeah. You, you, yeah. I think it's important to God. He starts it that way, kind of ends it that way, mm-hmm. um, and we're even going to see uh, the start of Exodus have a little bit of those overtones as well. And so um, we get the blessing of all the sons. We'll just point out a few highlights in that whole section. There's a, a few things to, to kind of point out. Uh, there's a little bit of possibility of like, is this kind of retelling the book? Like we start with Reuben, whose struggle was like lust or desire, just like Adam and Eve have lust or desire for, for the fruit in the garden that they saw. And it seemed um, desirous to them. Simeon and Levi. So we, the next story is Cain and Abel and Simeon and Levi get condemned for their violence related to the, the scene in Shechem. Um, and so um, maybe there's a little bit of retelling. It's possible. Um, and so those stories are good. But uh, one of the highlights uh, that particularly as New Testament people that are, it's important to draw out is, is out of Judah. There's sort of this promise that the scepter will shall not depart from Judah. Now, a scepter is something a king has. Like it is a very kingly reference uh, here, which is, which is peculiar because Israel doesn't have a king and they're not going to have a king for a while. And so uh, for them, how do they interpret that? Because the idea of a king seems to be not, not really on their radars for a while either. And so um, yet God says, look, there's going to be a king and he's, he's going to come from the line of Judah. Um, this sort of future prophecy that ultimately Jesus becomes the king from the line of Judah, which is really cool. Yeah, and then we see Joseph kind of get the blessing of the firstborn. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, again, is a different order than it ought to have been. Yeah, it's interesting with these tribes. There's 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 12 sons of Israel, but there's ultimately 13 names associated with the tribes of Israel. Right. But then there's only 12 pieces of land. So uh, we'll get to some of that when we get into um Exodus and how the lands get divided up because you you have 12 pieces of land and then Levi kind of the 13th tribe gets kind of their own deal um, as as non-land owners as the priests Um, but what we do see is that Joseph who always had his father's um, um, favor yeah favor gets essentially a double portion because his sons get two distinct pieces of land and so um, there's a lot of ways that all those numbers sort of play out and then like Dan disappears from the storyline so that when you finally get to to the end of the story he, in revelation he's gone but uh, who knows that, that might even be tied into like dan is is represented by a serpent in the blessing which 
If you started the book and read the beginning of the book, a serpent's not necessarily the most positive thing, and Dan has a pretty rough history. And we actually will see some of these blessings play out in Israel's history in these different tribes. Um, but Yeah, and so for those of you who are reading for the first time or who maybe have never noticed it before, when you counted, you may have gotten confused or you know that like there's 12 tribes of Israel, but there's nobody named Joseph. And it's because um, Joseph doesn't get a tribe. That tribe goes to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah. Yeah, there's no there's no cities in Georgia named Joseph. So um, we have a anybody listening not from Georgia. We have cities like Zebulun and stuff like that. So, um, anyways, uh, Jacob's death and burial. Um, so Jacob just wants to and desires to be returned home for his, mm-hmm. where his final resting place is to be back in the promised land, um, which is a great request from him. Sure. They've, they've, they found food and, and sustenance in Egypt, but, but home is really still the promised land. Which um, is a declaration of faith in, in some way or another, even for Jacob and then his sons who are willing to take him back there, yeah. uh, living out the promise that God made to their fathers. Yeah. And, and it's such a grandiose scene. It seems like it's like, a, 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 a huge entourage that even like other Canaanites are noticing. And so um, it's quite, they left hungry and in need and they come back with a parade of people. Yeah. Though um, so I want to make sure we get in our brains a little bit of the picture. Like Israel, the whole country at this point is 70 people that mm. are like Bedouin tent dwellers. Um, so this isn't like a mass crowd that is, um, uh, advanced in terms of technology or anything like that. These are shepherd Bedouin type people who set up tents where they can. And there's like 70 of them. And so I think sometimes we have in our brains pictures that I, I don't think are there. That, like that is the crowd that is going into Egypt. That would be very different than the crowd who leaves Egypt uh, in the beginning of Exodus. So, And then Joseph dies, which just... Well, let's oh, yeah. go to no. the God's good purposes part. Oh, so yeah. First, Sorry, I skipped right over Joseph's brothers are kind of freaked out after Jacob dies because they think, oh, no, maybe Joseph doesn't like us and he's going to wipe us out. Yeah, now that dad's not on the scene, Joseph, how do you really feel about us? Right, and and so they go back to their dad's old behavior, which is deception and trickery, but Joseph is the real deal. Yeah, yeah, and and lives up to, to, to... his desire to to care for his brothers to be part of the family and and reflects again like the the sort of um like i i i knew god was in this like there's wickedness there's brokenness but but i knew um that that god was with in using this situation for good yeah and i think the joseph story is our story as exiles and foreigners, Christians here. Mm-hmm. Um, we are sheep among wolves. We're sojourning in a foreign land and we are under the burden of slavery or even just a different ruler. But our home is the promised land and we know that one day we will end up there. So as much as we are in the world, we're not of it. And we have to maintain an identity separate from those around us. Yep. So, uh, and the death of Joseph now? <laughs> and then Joseph dies. To wrap up the book. Yeah. Cool. Um, All right. We'll deal with Exodus next week. Uh, New Testament. Let's talk about that. Luke 11. So we begin with Jesus's so kind words for these Pharisees. This is an intense week of reading in Luke. Yeah. There's a lot to reconcile, a lot to kind of fight through to understand. Yeah. And, And Jesus 
Jesus feels a little snarkier in the second half of Luke to me, um, where he's a little he's more not direct. Words, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> he definitely has some of that. And so he pronounces these six woes, which um, if you if you know your Old Testament or when we get there and read through it, hey, six six a set of six woes is not a, an uncommon thing, particularly like Isaiah five is the start of that and stuff. Uh, so um, I, I would imagine these. These people who are well versed in our scriptures are like, did you just say six of them towards us? Um, would would definitely think back to that. And Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy. He's pointing out all the ways that they're greedy, they're hypocritical, they're selfish, they're they're not living in line with how they're presenting themselves or how God has actually asked them to. Um, and, and just pointing out their sin and brokenness that, that no matter how much religiosity they try to bring to the scene, it's not a transformed heart. And they haven't, they haven't actually changed from the inside out. Um, which is why we, we get Jeremiah 29 and Ezekiel. Like the, the struggle always under the way that the, the law was there was that it doesn't change the heart. And so Jesus is pointing that out for even the people that follow the law to a T, that, that their, their heart has never really changed. And we need somebody from ex- outside of us to change our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's kind of interesting that he talks about the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and this covers basically all the bloodshed in the Old Testament history. Abel was the first one whose blood was shed, and Zechariah was the last in Old Testament history. So he's covering a large time period here and talking about hypocrisy and the shedding of blood. Yeah, well, good thing he sheds his blood for our own hypocrisy, uh, which I need in my own life. Uh, And so uh, then we get kind of beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So he just went from condemning the Pharisees to this like large crowd. And he just shouts out essentially to the crowd. It seems like, Hey, uh, watch out for these guys. Um, and While people are trampling each other. It's <laughs> a really interesting scene. Yeah. And he uses the word uh, hypocrite. Um, hypocrite carries with it a slightly different tone than what we have. And, and Matthew will play this out a little bit more than I think Luke does. But um, it, it, the hypocrite uh, was really actor. It was like the, the, the Greek theater. It was a word used in Greek theater to describe someone who uh, presented themselves in a certain way that wasn't always consistent with who they are. Didn't it was was just acting. And so um, Jesus is pointing out, look, they're they're presenting something up front that may not be what they're actually like. And so um, beware of them. Be 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 wary of 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 the inconsistencies of these people. And they're like leaven, which is like a little bit what can cause a problem in the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then some instructions on fear or having no fear. So um, he just warned about this crowd, but then he tells them, look, don't ha- don't have fear. Uh, have no fear. Whether it's Pharisees, whether it's Rome, don't have fear of these things. Be, be, be afraid of the real thing to be afraid of, which is the one who can't just kill you, but the one who actually has a determination of your actual soul, your your, yeah. your spirit. Like that is the one you should be really afraid of, who who is God. That's, that's it. And he uses this little weird example of five sparrows for a couple couple coins um which is really just pointing out like looks sparrows aren't worth much like we we can buy five sparrows just for a couple coins like and and god still takes care of them so how how much more how much more would would we be taken care of would 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 we as image bearers we as a a people um, be taken care of like god knows us he's the one that we should rightfully fear so fear not um, because 
you are of more value than than the sparrows that he still takes care of. Yeah, I think he's building and preparing the disciples here for persecution that is to come. You know, he's speaking woes on the Pharisees. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he moves into what it looks like to not be afraid of those circumstances. It's these religious people, not specifically maybe these Pharisees, but these religious people who will eventually kill him and then kill some of the disciples. Yeah. So they're being prepared and it's just going to continue to kind of be amplified through our discussion today. Yeah, Jesus is certainly, his upside down kingdom will stand in contrast to, to the kingdoms of power and might and violence and, and, and coercion religion. and religion. And, and, and so when he does that, like, don't be surprised then when, um, when they, when they come and they, they work against you and the kingdoms of this world work against the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised by that. And don't be afraid. And don't be afraid. So acknowledge me before men, like, if God's the one you should really fear, then don't shy back. Like, uh, be be willing to talk about it. Be willing. Don't don't don't, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Which uh, maybe Eugene Peterson probably has like a better way to probably phrase that section in terms of um, like on theological unpacking. And it says, if you badmouth the Son of Man out of misunderstanding or ignorance, that can be overlooked. But if you're knowingly attacking God Himself, taking aim at the Holy Spirit, that won't be overlooked. And and I think that's that's pretty reasoned. Um, of of how that text kind of kind of portrays itself of look like don't don't be the ones who just knowingly attack deny work against like acknowledge me acknowledge who i am um even if you get it wrong <laughs> acknowledge me yeah uh, and acknowledging looks like living out what you say you believe yeah and you know who doesn't do that hypocrites yeah yeah if he's your king then live like you live in his kingdom yeah mm-hmm. um and then we get the parable of this rich fool. So it seems a little bit of a turn uh, where um, somebody comes up and asks him uh, uh, around um, teacher, tell my brother to divide inheritance with me. So someone just comes up randomly and wants Jesus to have a ruling about inheritance. So it's, I, I don't know how much Jesus should or can or ought to weigh in. I don't know kind of the customs of how much rabbis did, but um, Jesus certainly has um a condemnation against him around covetousness that, that whatever is going on, he perceives it, that there's some coveting going on. Um, and, and he, um, he will, he will go on. This whole section is super interesting because, um, he tells a story about this rich man, um, who has plenty, wants to save it. Um, and ultimately God calls him a fool because, I mean, he, he could save all this stuff and then God can call him home that night. Um, but I would argue the next section that do not be anxious, I think is, is still packaged together because the, the way verse 21 reads. So, um, or verse 20, uh, this night your soul will be required to you and the things you have prepared, those will, who will they be? So is, so is the one who lays the treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And then next section finishes with you're not little flock for this is a father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom sell your possessions give to the needy provide yourself for money bags do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches no moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart be also and i think those two stories are, are absolutely sort of interwoven like the, there's the condemnation of the one and then an instruction on how now to actually live um augustine kind of puts the two together and he says uh, the farmer was planning to fill his soul with excessive and unnecessary feasting and was proudly disregarding all those empty bellies of the poor he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns and um i think that's what jesus is is a little bit after this, this is a complicated text with a lot of application um 
But um, the, the question of, all right, the things that you have, treasure, money, possessions, house, whatever those things are, what are they for? Who gave them to you and what are they for? And, and if the answer is, well, for me, and, and, and the rich young ruler is saying, I, 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 then you've missed the point. You, you've missed what they're actually for. And, and if, if you think controlling those or being anxious about those or that it's you to, your job to go get them and your job to procure those things and your job to make sure you make enough money, whatever it is, and, and it's causing your anxiety, all those things, then, then you've missed the point too. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing that that is worth noting here, there's two things that stand out to me. And first of all is the question, does this passage speak to us to not save for retirement or have savings? And if we look at this passage in isolation, we would say yes. But when we look at it within the whole context of scripture, uh, we know that saving isn't necessarily bad or wrong, but it comes back to being a matter of the heart and what we trust in. And that our anxiety and our pursuits and our mental energy shouldn't be spent consuming and increasing our wealth here on earth, but should our energy and effort and investment should be spent pouring out for others, knowing that it is God's good pleasure to give us what we need and trusting that his provision is enough for us. Because mm-hmm. probably many of us would say that his provision is not enough in this consumeristic Western culture that we live in, where we want more and more and more. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I just thought of while you were reading is that you know, lots of people ask Jesus questions and he gives completely different answers to them. And I think our questions are oftentimes more revealing of our heart than even the answers we find or the answers we want to get. And so maybe step back for a second and think of what kind of questions you ask of God and what is that revealing about your heart? Yeah. Sometimes there's a question of like, how much does Jesus have his God goggles on and, and can perceive certain things? I think sometimes Jesus is like, well, judging by how you ask that question, I know what the answer is, and and he can simply just respond uh, to to what is said or how it was asked, uh, and so. But let's keep moving on uh, to this question of uh, in the story of a um, uh, master of a house, and um, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated parable. Uh, Sarah and I were talking about this a little bit more at length than some of the others, um, and there may be multiple ways to interpret it. Um, uh, I'll, I'll do the surface level interpretation, I think, but then it gets a little more complicated when you start rolling in a few of the next stories. Um, but, uh, I think that the, the simplest way is like, look, like there will be one who will return or the son of man will return one day and for us to be ready for that. And, and there's a bit in the language, a condemnation of Israel, um, in, in some of this of, of them not being ready that they, they were the masters of the house and, and, and weren't ready for this moment. And so there's a little bit of application forward for those of us in the church, but I think some application for the people at the time, um, of, of how to interpret are, are we, were you ready? Were you ready for me to come? Were you ready uh, for Jesus to come and the future oriented version of that? Are we ready for Jesus to return? Do, do we live in such a way that we are anticipating the return of Jesus? Do we live as if there really is a, a life after this life? Um, that, that, that the same reason why we would store treasures in heaven. It's like there is another kingdom that is not of this world that, that Jesus will be coming back to usher in. Are we, are we ready for that? And are we living as if we're ready for that? Um, do we have that eternal perspective? Yes. As Christians, we're stewards of this earth and we were given that command in Genesis 1, 
28, to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate the earth and have dominion over it. We are to lead and protect and manage it in such a way that will please the master, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we will give an account for how we steward his kingdom. And are we thinking every day, like, I am the master of the house waiting for my ultimate master to return. And I will give an accounting for how I've behaved. Right. Yeah. That's sobering. <laughs> it's pretty sobering, yeah. And then Jesus makes this story about, I, I, I came to cast fire on the earth and do not think I've come to, to give peace on earth. No, uh, I tell you, but rather division. And um, in, in that follow-up to that, he actually ends up quoting uh, Micah 7. And I'll read it to you. The best of them is like a briar and the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. So he's pointing out the flaws. This is Micah pointing out the flaws of the people. So the day God visits you has come. And the day your watchmen sound the alarm, now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor, but put no confidence in a friend. Even when a woman who lies in embrace guards the words uh, the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against a mother. A daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. A man's enemies and members of his household. Um, and, and so like this whole section of Micah, is is a, a a bit of a prophetic section saying no the God the day God visits has come and Jesus quotes this text here in in relating to this whole follow up here about the divisions and um and I wonder if if Jesus is using that story he just told about being ready for this moment so to be ready like you, you, you and he's kind of condemning Israel as the master who has. Um, not been ready, who has not uh, prepared for this moment. And Jesus is coming here, quoting this text saying, no, God is here, which I think helps make sense of the very next story where it's the interpreting of the time, because the follow-up is, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. So why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And I think all those things are are, are quite a bit, it's, this is a little bit of a guess, but I think all those three stories are absolutely um, intertwined. That Jesus mm-hmm. is saying, look, you should have been ready. I'm quoting this text to tell you right now, this is the moment where God is here. I'm in front of you right now and you're missing it. And and you don't know how to interpret like right now, right? I'm here right in front of you. Right. And um, everything in the Old Testament points to him. Right. Yeah. All the things Israel, know you should memorized. know this. Yeah. Um, and, and you just don't. And so, um, yeah. And, and so Jesus is accusing them, uh, you hypocrites, you don't know how to interpret the time, which I, may tie into this next story, yeah. which feels a little bit out of a place if it's just about taking people to court. But like Jesus just was the accuser saying, you hypocrites, why have you not done that? And, and this very follow up story of being so. Um, so reconcile, reconcile with your accuser. Otherwise you will end up in a sort of more or less eternal prison. Debt prison was something that most people couldn't get out of when they're in debt. And so Jesus is like, reconcile with me or you will have a forever home of a debt you can never pay. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that whole settle with accuser thing is a much more figurative story than, Mm -hmm. than literal. We might deal with that in Matthew when it's put somewhere else. But I think, I think Jesus is the accuser in the story um, who has accused them of being hypocrites, called out their sin and now says, but come, come reconcile to me. Um, Which repent culminates. I don't know if culminate is the right word, but it continues to move into this next passage. We look of like repent or perish. Like the time you know, is now. You've got to repent. Like yeah. you've got to get right with your accuser. Division is coming. There's yeah. going to be, you know, you're going to account for what you've done. Repent. And, and who knows when you may die? Whether whether under the hair of a pilot, whether a tower falls on you. Like, 
and you're no better or worse off than, than those people. Like you, everybody's being accused. Like now's the moment to repent and, and come. And, and so I think that's the invitation on the table here by Jesus, um, which is as believers, like, yes, we have repented in, in such a way that, that salvation is here, but um, to, to live in such a way where we're like, yes, God, uh, my brokenness is sin to, to be in a constant state of, of repentance, of returning, of, of making sure that I am ready for the return of the Son of Man. Yeah, and, and stepping back and saying, do I really believe what I'm reading in here? And if so, am I living in such a way that indicates that I believe in this, that I believe what is happening eternally is more important than what I can see right in front of me? I think it, it's got to be sobering for us, just like it it was for them yeah. back then. So Psalm 49, we get introduced to a psalm by the sons of Korah. Do you want to talk about them for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so they have an interesting story. Uh, the sons of Korah, uh, their father led a Levitical uprising, and he and his family were actually swallowed by the earth in judgment. You can read about that in Numbers 16. But her sons, his sons were restored to the Levitical role and served as worship leaders in the temple. So anytime you see a psalm by the sons of Korah, you know a little bit of their history. Yeah, they got a few songs, uh, psalms in there. Yeah, in Psalm 49, um, I think it's a straight tie into to, to the previous text where it's like, look, like uh, the sons of Korah are writing, like, all, all will die. Like, that is the verdict on everyone's life. So so live for God. Like, that's what we should do with our lives in, mm-hmm. in light of the fact that the, there is a final determination on everyone. So therefore, with my life, I will give it to you, God. Yeah, and, and don't be troubled when you see earthly success among the wicked or people who do it unfairly or unjustly, God is eternal and has power to ransom from death. And that's what matters. And then Psalm 101, we, we definitely see a lot of I wills in there. And I mean, if you read them and put just Jesus in, in those uh, Jesus will or Jesus did, it is, it is nonstop. Like this is what Jesus did for mm-hmm. us. This is what Jesus will do for us. Um, that yes, maybe David's thinking of himself, but absolutely it's about Jesus too. Yeah, it really is. It's a messianic psalm, but I do think reading it as David and imagining uh, what if he wrote this early on in his kingship and was writing about the resolve he had to draw and bring God's people back to truly following Yahweh Mm -hmm. um, and pursuing holiness and righteousness and not tolerating those who didn't pursue the same things is a beautiful kingdom that is, is fulfilled in Christ. Yeah. And so next week we will start Exodus. Anything, uh, how big is your laundry list of things we should look out for as we start Exodus? Oh, man. <laughs> it's, um, Exodus is, I thought it was just a surface level story and it's not. Uh, okay, so look at the role that women play in the first four chapters of Exodus. See what they do and where they're mentioned. Um, and then in the New Testament, just pay attention to what happens on the Sabbath. There's a lot that happens on the Sabbath in next week's reading. Yeah, and so um, it it's it's heavy. This, I mean, the start of Exodus is going to be a lot of stuff. So uh, we hope not to go for like an hour and a half on our next episode. But, um, but no promises. Uh, one thing I always find interesting is is the way the the, the plagues are written um, have a one to one with some of the Egyptian gods, and so mm-hmm. um, it, it's worth looking up a little bit of the the, the connections there of like okay, frogs. What, what do Egyptians believe about frogs or what is there a God that represents frogs or looks like a frog and, and do stuff like that? Cause it's, it's pretty interesting to be like, okay, this is Yahweh versus the, the gods of, of Egypt. And so um, do a little research. I think for those of you like me, you'll geek out a little bit on how that, how that plays out. And then the new Testament, I mean, Luke, 
in case we didn't show you enough today, like Luke's placing of a story after stories, uh, like in juxtaposition of those stories, I think are, is really, really important. So as you're mm-hmm. reading a story, you go, why Why did Luke put this right here? And why did the story after that, the story before that, how does that help me understand the story I'm reading right now? Um, just, just keep doing that because that's a really, really good way, uh, particularly the gospel writers, to read them well. Um, because they all had like, three years walking around with Jesus and recorded like 1% of Jesus's teachings. And so they're, they're putting it in the orders that, that they are trying to, to convey theology, meaning purpose and are doing it in a specific way. So context, context, context uh, all day long. So um, yeah, but that's it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.